Well, hi there, Pastor Jeff here. Thank you so much for joining us for our time looking at the scriptures together this weekend. Before we go to that, can I shamelessly mention um, a new product, uh, a book that I've written that was just released uh, a couple of weeks ago. It's called Singing in Babylon, Finding Purpose in Life's Second Choices. And it focuses in on the story of a young man and his friends, the biblical character Daniel, who was probably between the ages of 12, maximum 18, when he was deported from the city of Jerusalem to the big bad city of Babylon, where everything was different. This was not what Daniel would have chosen. He was living, if you will, a second choice life. And all of us, those of us who follow Jesus included, experience second choices. But Daniel's story shows us that we can not only survive second choices, but we can thrive in them. And a link is coming up on the screen to let you know um, how and where you can get hold of the book. And let me just say that there are 12 online videos as well, uh, one for each chapter of the book, so you can work through the book together with me. All right, enough of the... Uh, of the commercial plug, but obviously I write books so that people will read them and pray that this will be a blessing to our Timberline family. We are continuing this series, uh, Who Do We Think We Are? We're looking at a letter. We're looking at Paul, the Apostle Paul's letter to the Christian community in Ephesus. Remember, uh, he was incarcerated under house arrest in Rome for a couple of years when he wrote this and other letters. And the theme this weekend is Who Do We Think We Are is the series, and the specific theme is We're Called to Get Along. And I'm going to read uh, a few verses, not the whole of Ephesians 4, but a few verses that are pertinent to this. This is what Paul says, Therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle, be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you've been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father who is over all and in all and living through all. However, he has given each one of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ. That is why the scriptures say, when he ascended to the heights, he led a crowd of captives and gave gifts to his people. Notice that it says he ascended. This clearly means that Christ also descended to our lowly world. And the same one who descended is the one who ascended higher than all the heavens so that he might fill the entire universe with himself. Now, these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we will be no longer immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. 
Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. This week, I had a brand new experience and one that I never anticipated I would participate in because I went to an escape room. Now, you will probably know what an escape room is. You uh, go into a room or a series of rooms, uh, normally with uh, some friends or family members, a team, and there are all kinds of clues hidden in the room to help you get out. I never thought that I would actually pay money so that someone could lock me up and then I could try to escape. It sounds like madness. It was actually a lot of fun. Although I've got to confess to you, if it was not for the fellow members of my team, I wouldn't be here today. I'd still be in the escape room trying to get out. Being locked in that room for one hour was fun. Being locked in house arrest, in what ultimately became death row for Paul, there was no fun whatsoever in that. It must have been terribly restricting. And yet the Apostle Paul, with his passion for Jesus, continues to fulfill his ministry as he writes these letters, including this letter to the church in Ephesus. And he is describing himself as prisoner Paul. Therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord. He's saying, hey, Christians in Ephesus, I paid a price for this gospel. And he's, he's saying, for you, I am in chains. And for Jesus, I am in chains. And so I've got a really important request to make. That's what he's saying. And in fact, it's more than a request. Because in the first verse there, he says, I beg you. It's a, it's a very strong word in the Greek. And he is saying, I am begging you. And, and I've, got some, I've got some qualifications for this request. I'm in chains for Jesus. I beg you, he's saying, be united, be together, get along. Now, it might seem rather obvious that that's the way that we should behave, but let's just be honest about it and own the reality. Often that doesn't happen. Often that doesn't happen between churches. One of the wonderful things about being in northern Colorado is a very real and authentic sense of unity that there is between many of the churches in our locality and the pastors meet together and pray together and dream together. And in many cases, there's not any sense of competition or, or division. That's really wonderful. But it doesn't always happen this way. Take a look at this ladder. You'll find that ladder in Jerusalem at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. That ladder has been up against that wall since the 1830s. And my brain can't do the maths right now or the math, but that's quite a long time. Someone put that ladder there because they were doing a repair on the building. But there are six different groups that use that church building, which, by the way, is one of the sites where it's believed that the cross was and where the empty tomb was. The tragedy is those six groups cannot agree about 
whose territory that ladder is in, and if one of the groups makes a move to put that ladder away, they are claiming territory within that building. And they have, I'm ashamed to say this, they have literally had to call riot police out because there have been leaders of the various denominations slapping each other over the head with candlesticks, which may I suggest is not a brilliant testimony to the love and grace of Jesus. Sometimes unity doesn't happen between churches, and sometimes it doesn't always happen within the church. And again, it's absolutely true to say, I am so grateful to be part of the Timberline family, where there is a very real, authentic sense of unity, not uniformity. There's a lot of diversity in the Timberline family, but a sense of unity together in our calling in the kingdom of God. But it doesn't always work that way. Some people only stay in a local church long enough to get offended. And then they get irritated and mysteriously, the Lord leads them to another church. The trouble is, they take their capacity for offendedness and even divisiveness to that next church. And they have a honeymoon period where everything is marvelous. And then they go on endlessly on safari looking for the perfect church. And I've often said it's a bit naughty. If you find the perfect church, don't join it. You'll ruin it. Just kidding. So what do we learn here about unity when we turn to this chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians? First of all this, unity, it's a gift. It's a gift, but we need to maintain it. Verse 3, make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. I remember as a young pastor back in the UK, one Sunday a lady came to me and she said, um, she said, Pastor Jeff, this church isn't loving enough. And by the way, this particular lady didn't have a splendid reputation for being awesomely loving herself, but that's not important right now. She said, this, this church isn't loving enough. And I said, you're right. What do you want me to do? And she said, well, sort it out. You're the pastor. As if I had some secret Lucas's lovey-dovey dust that I could bow your heads, everybody, and I'm going to just sprinkle this dust upon you and you'll all sort of sit up and start singing Kumbaya and having a wonderful time. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus and he's saying now, the Holy Spirit has created wonderful unity among you, but your responsibility, your responsibility, our responsibility is to maintain that unity. And when he says make every effort, the Greek words here, they are used uh, to describe a guard who is guarding a treasury, a troop of soldiers that might be guarding a palace. This, this requires intentionality. It requires an attitude check that we all regularly need to take. Proactivity. Now, I, I've said endlessly, you know, I don't know much about American football. I don't really understand it. But I do know that if you are a defender for the Broncos, and someone is charging towards you, you don't say, um, I say, you're jolly well not coming through here, and if you try it, you're going to have me to deal with. No, you get in there, and you have to take the guy out. I mean, that's the only way I can describe it. And the Apostle Paul is saying, spare no effort. And by the way, 
the word that he uses, it's called a present participle. What that means is we've got to keep on doing this. This has got to be not just a one-time deal, but an ongoing sense of diligence. It's a gift, unity, but we all need to take responsibility to maintain it. Let me ask the question of myself and of you. Is that our heart posture? Are we diligently desiring to contribute to the unity of our Timberline family? Secondly, let's live worthy of our calling. Paul says, lead a life worthy of your calling for you have been called by God. And by the way, Paul is not just preaching at the church in Ephesus. The language, again in the Greek that he uses here, is an invitation to join him in his pursuit of unity. He's saying, come on, let's do this together. And he says, live worthy. The Greek word is axios, which means to balance something on a scale. Paul is saying, here is the gospel. Here is the truth about Jesus. Now, balance the scale with a life that reflects that glorious good news. He's saying, don't live in a way that is beneath you and beneath the gospel. Know that you're called to live differently. Often we talk about the life transformation that Jesus can bring, but how would it be in northern Colorado if people look at the church or the churches and they see squabbling and fighting and consumerism and division over incidental things? Paul is saying, no, live worthy. The good news has impacted your life. Now, balance that good news now by living worthy of that wonderful message. Thirdly, realism is needed. Idealism doesn't build unity. Paul says, always be humble and gentle, be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Now, let me ask a really deep question. Why does Paul tell us that we need to be patient? Well, the answer is simply this. That's because in church life, in all relationships, we will need to be patient. He's not asking for something that is not a vital necessity. We will have the capacity to irritate, to offend, to upset each other. But Paul is facing the reality of the friction that can come into our relationships. When we have an idealistic view of anything, be it marriage or friendship or church, we are quickly going to become cynical. But when we face up to the fact that we are all broken human beings currently under construction, and that we will mess it up. Not an excuse for sin, not an excuse for relational friction, but facing the reality of the potential that there will always be among us. And Paul is saying, no, be patient. Be patient. I've, I've met Christians who ongoingly, we all experience the patience of God. We put him through a lot. And yet such a lack of patience with each other. And Paul uses the word Humble, humility. Humility was despised in the ancient world. The Greeks never used their word for humility in the context of approval. It was always uh, with a sense of a lack of admiration. They were almost sneering at the idea of humility. Being humble, that was for the slaves. That was 
for those who didn't have their freedom. And then here comes Jesus, the servant king. And he washes his disciples' feet with a, with a, with a, a bowl and a towel. And he, he models something completely different. And Paul is saying that we are not just to be impressed by the actions of Jesus, but we are to follow his example in humility and gentleness and patience. Let's be real. And I wonder if as part of our response to this message today, some of us need to let go of an unhelpful sense of idealism and face reality and realize that there will always be the potential for struggles and difficulties, frankly, wherever human beings are involved. That isn't that we surrender to less than the best, but it's just that we recalibrate our expectations and then respond when the struggles come and the tensions arise with gentleness, with humility, with patience. Fourthly, let's remember whose church it is. Verse four, there is one body and one spirit. And then verse eight, when he ascended to the heights, he led a crowd of captives and gave gifts to his people. Now, that's a rather strange sounding verse. Let's, let's go back and, and consider how a first century Jew would have understood that verse. And he, would have, or he or she would have understood this to refer, uh, it's a picture like that of Moses coming down the mountain with the Torah, the tablets of the law. And Paul is saying, instead of coming down the mountain with the law, rather Jesus came down and he came and he offered himself and he offered the gifts of the Holy Spirit he offered gifts and graces, which all of us, talents, which all of us can experience in different ways. But the central point is this. Paul is saying, don't forget whose church it is. Now, now sometimes, and I understand why we use the language, sometimes, often we talk about my church. Yeah, Timberline, it's my church. And, and that's really rather wonderful in the way that I talk about my family. I'm aligning myself fully with that group. But you, you know, we can take that a little bit too far where instead of saying my church in terms of affection and affiliation, we say my church in terms of ownership. And the truth is the church doesn't belong to you. It doesn't belong to me. It doesn't belong to any human being, it belongs to Jesus. If I can put it as bluntly as this, he is the only one who has died to redeem this outfit. The church is his bride. And I think that's a wonderful truth, but it's also a sobering truth. I remember the day that Kay and I got married. She was 19 minutes late, but I'm over that now. And I remember that moment when she came down the aisle in a 1978 fashion wedding gown. We looked at the photographs and I had a, ta a tie. I was wearing a suit and I had a tie. I think the tie was bigger than my head, which seems almost impossible to believe. And I just know that if someone, uh, when Kate came down the aisle on the arm of her father, 
if someone had stuck their foot out and tripped her up, I'd have been pretty mad. Don't you treat my bride like that. Is it possible, hey, scratch that, it's more than possible. Surely when we are tempted to rush to unkind words, when we relish the opportunity to criticize, and it's not that healthy criticism is not important in any church, but there are some people who kind of make it their hobby. Should we remember, surely we should remember that this is not our church but the church belongs to Jesus. Again, I want to be absolutely clear. That is not in any way to silence helpful and critical feedback, even if it's painful. We're part of a church, not part of a cult. There's a massive difference. But as we do at times have difficult conversations, when we do disagree, let's remember whose church it is. It belongs to Jesus. The fifth thing is this. We need to cut out the comma and play our part. Now, let me explain that. Verse 12 says, talking about Christian leaders, their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. The wrong punctuation can make something sound completely different from its original meaning. Now, let me explain that. We read in the King James Version of verse 12, and he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, comma, for the work of the ministry. So that comma makes it sound like the pastors are the ones who do the work of the ministry. But actually, take the comma away, and you read something completely different. He gave some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry. In other words, serving and ministry is not limited to certain pastors and leaders, but actually our task is to equip everybody to serve in the work of the ministry that God has given them. That comma changes the meaning of that verse. We need to get rid of it and realize that God has called all of us to play our part in serving him. Well, the last thing is this, and that is number six, let's speak the truth in love and grow up to be like Christ. Verse 14, then we will no longer be immature like children. Verse 15, instead we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ. And when Paul says, speak the truth, the Greek here is literally truthing in love, truthing in love. Here's the thing. If we don't speak the truth in love, we don't speak the truth. Because the tone in which we speak cancels out some of the truth that we are trying to express. I've got to be honest with you, over the years that I've been in, in Christian leadership, some of the most horrifying times for me have been when someone comes up to me after a service and they say, well, Pastor Jeff, I, I'm going to tell you something in love now. That is when I'm normally praying for the location of a nuclear fallout shelter, because often when people say, I'm going to say this in love, they do anything but. And I'm looking for a fallout shelter or at very least 
a crash helmet. Paul is saying, the way you speak to each other, it really matters and do that in love. And notice this, this is not just a behavioral preference. It would be nice if you did that. Now, the apostle Paul lines up the ability to speak the truth in love with Christian maturity. Maturity in Christ is not measured on how many verses we can memorize, how much of the Bible we know, how much theology we've studied, although all of those things are really important. But here in this passage, the Apostle Paul says, if you want to be all grown up, then make sure that when you speak, you speak the truth in love. We are called to get along. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word and for the fact that you have called us to be members of the family of God together. We thank you for the unity that is indeed a gift of the Holy Spirit, but you have called us to maintain that unity. Where we are doing the opposite, perhaps, not just in church life, but in the unity that we might be destroying in friendships, in marriages, help us to take responsibility and play our part so that we might live worthy of our calling we are visionary people, but help us to be realistic in our expectations and respond with humility and gentleness and patience. So much easier to talk about these things than to live them. Help us, we pray. We affirm that it is a joy and a privilege to be part of your church globally. And we affirm that the church belongs to you. Whenever we are tempted to forget that and not just align ourselves with the church, my church, but rather try and take ownership of it, help us to remember whose church it is. Help us to play our part in the work of the ministry. Help us to grow up and be like Christ in his graciousness, in his gentleness, and even when as he when you were forthright, Jesus, when you spoke out hard things, help us to do so with a heart of concern and compassion, with love, with a listening ear, never wanting to win, always wanting to build and bless. We ask these things together in Jesus' name, amen.